everybody, and welcome back to the Consummate Athlete Podcast, uh, where we are finally actually recording from home and with no intentions of going anywhere crazy for the next little bit. I'm Molly Herford. Uh, for those of you who I haven't met at this point, I'm a writer, um, podcaster, and basically someone who loves talking about and doing pretty much anything involving outdoor activity or just movement in general. And I'm Peter Glassford. I'm a registered kinesiologist and endurance coach. All right, and here we are in Ontario. We're north of Toronto, where it is really cold and gloomy out right now. It feels like cyclocross season. I don't know if it's really cold, but... It's... Okay, you're Canadian. I'm not, all right? It's, yeah, it's getting there, but we're still in fall, I think. Look, I'm wearing long sleeves. That means it's gotten cold. I have on fluffy socks. I'm getting grumpy about having to go outside. It's definitely getting to that sort of time where doing anything just takes more time. Mm -hmm. Had to put on a full rain suit to walk to work today. I used to just sort of walk out the door and leave, but nope, full rain suit, which I do like my full rain suit. It mm -hmm. makes me feel like in, sort of not invisible, but invincible. Invincible, yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Um, if you guys have been keeping up with cyclocross, you know that it's been probably some of the most exciting races and weeks in cyclocross that we've had. I would, I'm going to argue since we had Worlds in the U.S. back in 2013. Uh, the women's racing in particular uh, in Waterloo and then again in Iowa City at Jingle Cross these past two weeks was just you know, absolutely phenomenal. We're seeing these young racers like Ellen Noble and Katie Keogh really coming into their own as, you know, not just women who are winning races domestically, but women who are now, you know, on the podium internationally. So yeah, racing was super fun. I got to be in Waterloo for the World Cup there and watch that, but then we actually watched Jingle Cross on TV ourselves on Saturday, which was actually kind of almost more fun in some ways. Yeah, I mean, it was good good racing, for sure. It was... Uh... Well, and unlike when you're there and you have no idea what's happening. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of sports are like that. You can't really tell what's going on when you're sort of just sitting there in the pits, right? So mm -hmm. It's different. Like, sometimes you see more stuff, but it's you don't see the whole race, right? You can't see... You know, we traveled around with a professional team, and I don't think I ever got to see, you know, all the cool sections on the course. You sit in the pit or you sit at the start line, right? Mm -hmm. I used to joke when, you're, when you were at races in Europe a couple of years ago, the only way you could tell what was going on, because they're so crowded with people and it's so hard to get from place to place throughout the, you know, course of the race, that the only way you could tell where the leaders were was just you'd listen for a dull roar, and whenever you heard it, you're like, okay, Sven Nice is over there now. And right. That was the only way you could tell. And Sven Nice was is one of the most famous, the most famous yeah. of cyclocross racers. Very since, famous in Belgium. Since he retired, it's very hard to tell what's going on. People still cheer, but now it's much more sporadic. There's not that like wave of noise that comes when he's on course. Yeah, I don't really have a perspective on, like, whether it's, like, we have Wayne Gretzky or there's, like, Michael Jordan or something like that. Like, I don't know if he's to that level. Uh, yeah, probably not quite there, but pretty close. Um, like, in Belgium, I'm just, like, people really know him. Yeah. But you wonder if you, like, went up to some random person in the grocery store and you said, Sven Nice, would they know what you're talking about, you know, versus if you go to any Canadian grocery store and you say Wayne Gretzky it would be hard to find someone who doesn't know what you're talking about. It's true. Even I know Wayne Gretzky. It's true. But speaking of cyclocross legends, it was super cool to see Mariana Voss back racing. And, I mean, watching her in Waterloo just absolutely stomp it. She ended up winning over Ellen Noble. She took the win just in the last maybe quarter lap. She got a gap. Um, but the two of them raced together the whole time. And... You know, Mariana was seven times cyclocross world champion. She's, I think, the most decorated female cyclist in the world at this point, as far as the various medals and world championships and Olympic titles that she's won over the years. Um, and to see her back after a couple of years where she wasn't really racing that much uh, is just really great. 
She really, you know, lightens up the race a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it was pretty exciting. Mm-hmm. So, anyway, with that in mind, we figured we would hit some of the most common cyclocross questions today, since we're right in the heart of cyclocross season. The uh, the main spectator time in the U.S. is sort of over. Uh, I was really excited to see a lot more spectators at Trek this year, so that was pretty cool. Um, but now, I think a lot of them have gone home and are starting to race. So, with that in mind, we wanted to talk a little bit more about some of the ins and outs of cross racing. And even if you've been racing for years, I think a lot of this stuff bears either rehearing, possibly hearing for the first time, or if you do know it, it bears repeating. Yeah, or maybe there's something there that, you know, you can sort of share mm-hmm. with someone or keep it in mind if someone's got a question or disagree with us and argue via Twitter. Yeah. It's always feel, fun. Feel free. <laughs> yeah. Has anyone actually ever really argued with us on Twitter? No. Yeah, it's kind of disappointing. I mean, don't argue with me. I, I'm very fragile. I can't handle it. But you can argue with Peter. Yeah, I feel like it's just YouTube comments, which I try and not read because they're pretty bad. Yeah. But anyway, uh, let's talk about the most arguably controversial of the uh, cyclocross topics, which is remounting and dismounting. Um, and you obviously have been thinking about this a lot in terms of breaking down what exactly goes into remounts and what exactly goes into dismounts because you just finished uh, recording that course for the Ryan Leach connection. And of course, we'll link to that in the show notes for anyone who hears this and is excited about learning more about how to do a proper remount and dismount and needs more of a visual than us talking about it. But I don't know. What do you think some of the most common mistakes people make when it comes to remounting are? Uh, I, I mean, I think the one thing, like if you're newer, and sometimes even not newer, like I think people think that the top people never dismount or something. Like, you know, especially if you're coming from road or mountain, maybe it doesn't occur to you. But there's a lot of stuff where people get off and run. Like if you watch even World Cup mountain bike races, there's been the last few races to end the season had... A bunch of running sections you know maybe someone sort of cleared it but at the end of the day racing is the fastest way to get to the finish line and cyclocross is very much set up that like there's sections that are trying to make you run and you know you might be able to do it you might be able to trials your way through it or have so much power and pedal stroke that you sort of get your way through it but at some point running and carrying your bike might be faster regardless of your skill on the bike so I think sometimes the biggest mistake is thinking that like it's always better to ride. We definitely saw that. If you watch the Jingle Cross World Cup, and we'll include links to that in the show notes, the you know elite men and women, the top racers in the world, probably ran a third of that course. Yeah, and that was very, you know, we had Bill on and we were talking about sort of lamenting a bit about the disappearance of some of the like shouldering technique and running less. Um, and some of that is, you know, early season cyclocross and North American cyclocross tends to not be maybe as muddy or as maybe as technical or something. But this latest World Cup certainly involved a lot of running, right? They were very steep and off-camber descents that were just, you know, again, if you had the best mud tire set up, you could have probably ridden it and made it down. But someone might be running, you know, ahead of you or around you while you're trying to get braked and turned around and everything else. Mm-hmm. So I think that's that's maybe not what you're thinking about when you think about mistakes, but I think the mistake is dividing that out as like a lesser skill, and indeed you need to get off your bike. Um, you know, here in Ontario we have lately it seems like sand pits and you know corners that stop you dead, and it's like half the time you're better to get off and just run around or over them and protect your bike and not have to think about it. Um, so I guess that leads me to the second one is you have to learn how to mount and dismount really well so that that's true and, and probably running beside your bike or carrying your bike is going to be important as well. Um, and I think that's probably more what you were thinking when you said like common mistakes. Um, so for dismounting, like the, the goal is to not stop. So a lot of times people will have to stop. So you got to try and figure out a way that you can sort of coast and hop off your bike and then pick it up or push it and then hop back on without yeah. stopping. I'll say I saw that a ton in Reno. Uh, there was a really long sand pit and I think maybe one or two of the pros cleared it. 
Um, but the difference between the pros and then the fields that went before them were the pros were hopping off when they were still probably going like, you know, seven miles an hour. Like when they'd started to slow down, they were off and starting to run. Whereas in the amateur fields, people were coming to that like screeching halt in the sand before right. stopping, putting a foot down and getting off and having to start all over again. Yeah, so it's sort of, you know, you use your momentum, and in the case of a sand pit, you maybe, like, get in, you know, and you know how far you can get. You know, you can sort of eye that up, and then you have to execute that dismount, which is a little unnerving, especially if you're getting into sand or mud, but then and then sort of start running. Um, and so working on that even, right? I was working with someone on the weekend on that, just coming into a sand pit and, you know, knowing that okay that's about as good as it's going to get and now i'm on foot and that's fine and not getting bummed out about it but you know that's sort of the the next step and then you know once you're up to speed again and past the obstacle or the sand pit then hopping back on again without stopping Mm -hmm. right so that means throwing your your leg up onto that seat uh rather than trying to like get into your pedal instantly or you know sort of start the race you know or do a scooter start or something sure I think on like the nitty gritty side of things, the thing that I see people do most frequently with dismounting is keeping their hands on the hoods and then running, just holding the handlebars instead of using the top two plus one hand on the hoods to, you know, kind of get that extra traction and control and stuff. Yeah. And I'm definitely a little anal about that, uh, in in any type of cycling that like basically when you're off your bike, you should be grabbing the top tube. Um, and especially when you're doing something like running down a hill, if you're on the left side of the bike, um, you have access to that front brake with your left hand, and then you can sort of leverage off the top tube and lean on it or pick it up, whatever you need to do to move the bike around, but also use it as like a crutch. Mm-hmm. So since you have that front tire and then the leverage of your all your body on the top tube, like you end up with this crazy traction that you can then, you could basically walk down like the steepest, slipperiest hill. Um, and that front wheel will almost always get traction because you can leverage sort of using the front brake and then your hand on the top tube. Um, so it works really, really well um, to run down anything sort of sketchy. Uh, but it also to lift it over things. So obviously the barriers, but if it was a rocky mountain bike thing or up some steps or, you know, keeping that rear wheel and all your drivetrain out of the sand would be another thing. So. Yeah, there's definitely, I mean, you go too far and it doesn't really matter sometimes. You can just run with both hands on the the bar. But I think ergonomically and then also sort of just for control, it makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, perfect. Any other common mistakes that you thought of as you were doing the course? Uh, Specific to sort of mounts and dismounts? Yeah. I mean, we've talked a bit about like the, I think with Bill, we talked a bit about things like there's the, the classic like, putting the seat into your armpit or double tapping, you know, not quite committing to getting onto the saddle. Um, and then the classic, like landing on your crotch, which I was going to say the cowboy. And I think all of them, I, I always sort of just see, cause there's people who are the best in the world who do all of those things. Maybe not so much the double tap. You wouldn't see as much, but you can do the other ones and still like sort of, be fine and if you're if you're good you're not losing time you're not bending seats you're not falling over doing any of this stuff you're not losing time then it's fine you don't have to do any of it Um, if you're very tall you can put the seat wherever you want you're not going to hit your bike on you know the reason when people lift up and put the seat in their armpit it limits how high you can lift it especially if you're a small person right you're sort of in this not double jeopardy but what is that like a not double-edged sword but you know what i mean lose-lose <laughs> yeah yeah lose-lose I guess so you know you're short so you can't lift the bike as high your arms may not you know you're a cyclist of some type so your arms may not be overly strong like mine um but then you so because you're not strong you try and lift the bike with your bicep and sort of like pull it row it into your armpit but then your armpit isn't very far off the ground so your wheels are going to hit the barriers um so i think working on that i think sometimes it's technique and just the speed you can carry in uh in the course we do go over a bit over that and sort of just different techniques Uh, molly executes the wave technique pretty well where sort of the wheels go out to the side of you and that works pretty well especially if you can do it with a bit of speed it sort of just naturally whips out 
Um, and there's a few different variations on that I think that you can do. I think your point to sort of the left hand is on the handlebar. A lot of times people don't have both hands helping. So if you think about pressing like a, a barbell over your head versus like just using your left arm, you know, then you have two arms helping. So I think that helps. Um, I guess we're sort of on to best drill here. That's what I was going to say. For so. the double tap, what I've been working with people is like, I don't think people, it, it's sort of that you have to jump off the cliff, right? There's a little hop that does have to happen. You do have to sort of commit to that, like one, two, if you can visualize yourself stepping beside your bike, it's sort of like one, two, and then up your right leg goes up. I always joke when I first learned to remount, I had to go across a field, I think 10 times next to my bike, just going one, two, three, right. one, two, three. Yeah. Never got it. Yeah, and the counting sometimes is confusing to people, but like you're running across and then somehow your right leg needs to get onto the seat, right? Um, and it's that transition from like the left foot hitting the ground somewhat explosively to the right leg landing on the seat. And it's not a lot different from like hopping from your left foot to your right foot. It's just now we're talking about hopping from your left foot to your right thigh, right knee, however you want to think about it. But your bike's moving forward. Right. So there's sort of this like jump onto the skateboard moment or jump on to like something and slide. Ooh, that's bad news. I suck at skating. Yeah. So anyone who hasn't ever done sliding sports is going to find it, you know, sort of unnerving, but like someone who skied might find it okay. But there's that hop moment. And so what I've been having people do is sort of just work on hopping off of one foot. So you could do skipping, you could stand beside your bike and keep your hands on your handlebars. And just sort of feel the fact that you can sort of hop and use like your left foot and sort of hop and hop and hop. Um, and there's a variety of sort of goofy drills that I do with that, but getting that hop. And then the other one I've been doing to help with the double tap is you actually, you could do this on like either with your seat lowered or standing above your bike on a side hill with your bike across it. So you're higher than your, your bike. Uh, and you put your thigh up on the seat. So like where maybe your shorts end on your on your thigh. So mm -hmm. pretty far down your thigh. That's where the seat's going to be. Your hands are on your handlebars. And then you're going to try and hop that thigh off the seat. And you can use your hands on your handlebars. And you're not moving. But you're just going to try and use your left toe, your left foot, to sort of hop. And you're going to gently let that thigh come off the seat. So it's a bit of a mobility challenge. But you're sort of showing yourself that you can lift your thigh higher than your seat. And then really all you have to do is sort of run along, use your arms and sort of lift, you know, toe hop, left toe hop, that thigh onto the seat. So that's been, that's had decent progress lately, just sort of getting into the position and feeling that hop. Um, I guess without going to, so our other, what's our other challenge here? We have landing on the crotch. I think that one sort of helps with landing on the crotch and the double tap. Um, I guess related to the, the, it's not so much the landing on the crotch. That's the issue. It's the fact that both feet end up ahead of people when they do it. Right. And so the previous drills I just described is more of like a lunge where that left foot is going behind you because it's pushing off the ground. Right. So it's like when you're running or lunging over something, that left foot has hit the ground and then the right leg, right knee is reaching up onto the thigh. So it's very athletic, right? So you should have your left foot way behind you, like back behind the rear hub. And then your right knee should be forward on the saddle. Eventually your right foot should extend down to the pedal, which should be about in your power position. And then you can stomp that. And then the left foot can come in and hit its power position as that right foot has moved the pedal. So that's a lot of visualization for people to do. But that, in my mind, is what's wrong with the quote-unquote land on the crotch. It's right. not so much that you're landing on your crotch, ha, 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 you're going to you know, crotch yourself. It's that when people do that, it's usually accompanied by this like moment of nothing happening, like no forward propulsion. You right. sort of jumped onto the saddle, you're sliding along you know, rolling along, and then you have to find the pedals, but both legs are awkwardly out front. Right, and you really see this if you're on a flyover, I think, and you have to remount at the top of the flyover. It's super apparent mm -hmm. who's not getting into their pedals, and, like, I'm not going to lie, I've seen some pretty gnarly crashes because of that. Yeah. Because if you're kind of flying onto your bike and you're hitting the downside of the flyover... Yeah, like the speed, you have to be really quick, right? And, and and it's not even, 
I, th I think that method gets you clipped in pretty quickly once you figure it out. Um, but that's the other piece is you don't necessarily even have to get clipped in. You just need to get moving forward. Because once you're moving forward and there's been some forward propulsion, you've run after the barriers or the obstacle, you've pedaled with your right foot, you've pedaled with your left foot. By that point, you're, you know, you're sort of up to speed. You know, in the case of the flyover, you don't even need much speed. Um, and then you can sort of deal with whatever situation you have, right? If you have to bang pedals out because they're muddy or whatever you got to do, do another couple pedal strokes, you'll be clipped in, right? But the goal is you got to keep moving forward. You mm -hmm. can't like do the pause and look at your pedals for like 20 minutes trying to get clipped in, right? Mm -hmm. can, you just got to keep moving forward. Yeah. So those, yeah, those are sort of two or three drills, I guess. Okay. Um, so I yeah. want to talk about cyclocross racing now because I know... You know, a lot of people we know are, in fact, racing. We've both raced before. You obviously coach a lot of racers. So let's talk about the actual race day. So when it comes to common mistakes, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say the biggest one I see people make, and I'll include myself here, is the getting to the venue later or a little too late. And cyclocross is weird because, on one hand, you don't really need to do you know, that much stuff beforehand. But it's also kind of a crazy sport where pretty often the parking lots are packed. You end up parked pretty far away from the start. Uh, there's a lot of weather considerations that come into play. Registration is often somehow hidden and nowhere near where you've parked or near the start. Uh, porta potties also hidden, possibly in another dimension. Not really sure. Um, so I think arriving with a lot more time than you think you need is probably my number one tip and arriving too late is the biggest mistake I see people make. Yeah, it's nice to have time. Um, it sort of depends who you are and what you're trying to do a bit, right? If your race is at, you know, first race, 7 a.m., there's only so much you can do. Um, and Molly's getting a call. Ignore that. Uh, so if you're early, you know, still you're going to try and arrive, you know, whenever registration's set up, whenever the course is going to be ready. Um, you know, a lot of people like to do some sort of pre-ride lap. So knowing when those gaps are between the races is going to be important. You can look at that up on the race schedule, the tech guide usually. Um, most, like, again, there's sort of the, the two sides of the sport, right? There's, like, the more professionalized, like, bigger races. But a lot of people are doing local races, right? Maybe a weekly race even on a weeknight. Uh, and to me, that's sort of, you you show up, take care of your registration, maybe, you know, between one and two hours beforehand. And then usually the course is open around one hour before your course or your race. And that might just be a short window between races. Again, you have to sort of figure out when that window is going to be, or if it's just for an hour before the race, you have a free lapse. You can just do as many as you want. And then in which case, you know, I would sort of do a quick spin on the road just to get warmed up um, and then do some laps, easy laps, sus lines. And then maybe one, you know, if you're going to do two laps, maybe total, because these are short laps in cyclocross. So maybe an easy lap looking at lines, maybe redoing a couple things, and then a lap where I just sort of hit a couple sections harder to sort of get activated. And, you know, rather than doing my usual sort of four or five by 45 second sprints, you know, on the road or on the trainer, um, you know, a lot of times I would just warm up on the course and then go to the start. Now, if it's muddy, that all gets thrown out the window, right? Yes, and also can we can we speak to the fact that, like, one hard lap is usually quite sufficient and you know, kind of ODing on the hot laps, you know, you ride a couple, you know, you ride the one by yourself, but then as you get to the end, your buddy is going out for his hot lap, so you hop on there, and yeah. now you've done six. Somehow. Yeah, and so a lot of times what it ends up being is, you know, if it's muddy, maybe you can get on earlier, let's assume you're not your first race of the day, then you can get on and do a lap, suss out the course, see where the problem areas are, and that's maybe not even your warm-up, right? And I've done that as a walk. If it's been super muddy, because I often don't have a second bike or a mechanic there. So, I mean, if it's just crazy, you know, you can almost walk the course while the other race is going on outside of the course. Like, just walk as you're spectating, right? And sort of see where's everyone riding. You can sort of um, use other people, you know, learn from their mistakes and their experiences. You just sort of watch where people are riding, where are they screwing up, who's getting going faster through the corners, you know, or if they're running versus riding, which we talked about. 
Um, and then maybe if you did ride, you go back, clean up your bike, hose it down, you know, get it reset up. And then maybe you're going to warm up on the trainer or warm up on the road around the venue, right? Mm-hmm. And that, that, again, is in that half hour, say, before the start. Okay, let's talk about the elephant in the room. What tire pressure are you running? I mean, that's such an odd question, but if you're... I think if you, if you sort of think 25 to 35 and you're in that range, but you're going to set it up day of the race, but because you've used your tires in all your cross practices, you have an idea of what normal is. Um, so I often run just clinchers. Uh, again, I don't race that competitively or at all for cyclocross at the moment. Um, so I just would have like some cotton clinchers, um, you know, with some decent tubes in there and I'm fairly light and try to be fairly smooth. So I've been running, we were out doing a big cross practice and some simulation on the weekend. And I think I ended up running 27, 28. And that's, so that would be on the very low end for what people generally would run with tubes. I think, again, those are cotton, look like cotton sidewall ones. Um, but yeah, if you were running tubulars and you were butter smooth and a lighter person, you could be down, you know, a sandy course. I've seen 18, 17 PSI. Uh, so tubulars are generally going to be on the lower end. I'd like to find out when you say lighter person, though, you're not talking like 160 being a lighter person. No, I'm talking, talking like, like, yeah, I don't know. I like low. Yeah. Um, yeah, like just smaller female racer. Sure. Or, or males. It could be anyone. But again, it, it's sort of that what tire are you running? So you have tubulars can be run a little lower. And then if you think about this as a, a spectrum, a sliding scale, you have like tubulars on the left, then tubeless, then then maybe cotton clinchers with some latex tubes. Uh, and then you have your like standard clinchers that came stock on your normal rims. Um, and so the, the right side of that, the clinchers that came on your bike, they're going to need to be run at a higher pressure to avoid pinch flatting. The tubulars, assuming you have the budget, uh, can be run much lower on that, that sort of range. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the all being like, even if you didn't know the pressure, it's sort of what keeps the tire on the rim and doesn't flat. Right, like you're sort of just trying to find that lowest pressure that gives you that cushion, nice cornering traction, but then also doesn't flat or roll off the rim, right? And so you could set that up in your practice, in your pre-ride, right? Absolutely. So tire tread. Now, if you were, you know, just a normal, like semi-competitive, we'll say a cyclocrosser who doesn't have a team budget, what tires would you want to have sort of the three main ones right there's like file tread and then like an arrow tread or what i just call like middle of the road i think there's another name diamond tread maybe is that diamond i don't know and then there's like a mud tread um so in like challenge tires that would be like the griffo and the what's the slalom slalom maybe is there slalom's the mud griffo is more that mid yeah we're probably bastardizing that but griffo like something like that middle of the range like that logically if you had to cover the range you could run that um but you'll see people who only race in dry conditions on you know grassier courses they might only run file treads and they'll be perfectly happy and i have a couple clients that really like mud and stuff and they love those big mud treads and you know they run those all this to say, you know, for most people, you don't need 18 treads. and Yeah, and I think a lot of people, like, they have their one set of tubulars for cross, yeah. right? Um, you know, and I think that's fairly common now. Some of the price points are coming down on the, the tubular wheels. Uh, so a lot of people would just use that middle-of-the-road tire, right? And again, the Challenge Grifo is one, and I, I can't think of the name of the other ones, but... Everyone makes sort of the generalized three sort of treads, and you just need that middle of the road one. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of those, especially in tubular, is gonna you know you can drop the pressure when it's muddy, and generally it'll hook up fairly well. Um, but there's all sorts of like any tire or tire pressure question. There's gonna be all sorts of theories, right? Like using the super dry tire, the file tread in sandy courses, right? But for most people, they're not gonna be at some of those Euro courses that are you know basically on sand the entire time, but who knows? Um, so yeah, yeah, that's what I would go. You know, if you have to have a tire, one tire to rule them all, the all-around tire, right? It's sort of like tires on your cars. You don't. If you could only have one tire, you wouldn't run snow tires year-round. Didn't even know snow tires were a thing until last year, to be honest. Right. 
Okay. How to pack for cyclocross as a man who walks to work in a rain suit. Um, yeah, you need a lot of clothes, for sure. Definitely more is better is what I've found and I get made fun of at the races or did when we were traveling with the team, but the amount of times that my clothes got borrowed were, were pretty up there. Yeah, I think Jeremy's, uh, Jeremy Powers, he did a like skills video. I think mm-hmm. it's on iTunes. I think it's where I watched it. Uh, and it actually has a really good section of it on dressing and like the different like weather conditions and like what he would have and if you're doing multiple pre-rides or you're going super early in the day and you know maybe you're going to get it on one or two of those pre-rides or you're just going to hang around the venue and stand on cement in the freezing cold all day and then have to be motivated to race at 1 or 2 p.m you're going to need to be like really warm the whole day Uh, and then you're going to have to be ready you know if it rains or whatever for all that so I tend to have multiple little bags with, you know, a glove bag with every single glove, uh, and then, you know, arm warmers, leg warmers, full tights, booties, and then all the jersey combinations, all the short combinations. Um, yeah, you need a, a lot of undershirts, raincoats, winter coats. Um, I usually will have like a holy crap coat that's just like a parka that I'm not going to race in, but maybe you could pre-ride in if it was snowing and getting cold um, or that you could stand at the line with, um, especially if you have someone obviously to take that or if you can leave it at a safe venue on the fence. Uh, but you got to stay warm. And that's, I just was saying this to a client the other day, like if you're going to race cyclocross, you need to embrace being happy and prepared in these conditions, right? So when it's you know, a non-race weekend or it's Wednesday and it's your big long ride and it's a little rainy and a little, you can't be sad and stay inside. Like you have to find, that's the day you're training. You're training that mindset. You're training that, like, what do I wear when it's rainy and negative five or sorry, that's Canadian freezing out and raining. Right. So that's, you got to be training that part of the sport the mental part and the the clothing part right that to me that's cyclocross you could argue is probably so she was we get into october november is partially a dressing contest right it's like a fashion contest of sorts yes (laughs) um to add to that i think the other thing that gets neglected fairly often is the post race so not only just having the warm clothes to put on when you're done racing, but also making sure you have a garbage bag in the car, uh, maybe a towel and an extra water bottle. If it's a cold day, maybe you actually have like a thermos of warm water so you can get the mud off of your face with a nice warm towel. Yep. Uh, garbage bags definitely a good Garbage idea. bag's a huge thing. And actually what we usually bring with us is we have a, I think it's a two and a half gallon weed sprayer. So just like a little pump action one and it's enough that you can get most of the mud off of yourself and off of your bike if you can't get over to the power washer um i will actually really people seem to think that this is like a really fun cool thing to do and i've totally been guilty of it but the pressure washers are not for people it's very bad for your skin to hit it with that kind of i mean first of all cold water coming from the hose but also with that kind of pressure, um, people can get cut from that. So just a cautionary thing. Like I know if you're muddy, it's really tempting to go over and like laugh and stand in front of like the sprayer thing. And yes, it's hilarious. Um, but that's how you get either hypothermia or your skin cut open. Yeah, I mean, there's probably sometimes a lower pressure spray, but I think the the bigger issue is usually that on those days, there's probably a massive lineup to get bikes sort of cleaned up and maybe people that need to, you know, get it cleaned up for their race later or cleaned up for, you know, whatever. It's got to go into their car or, you know, it's it's for post-race sort of bike spray off. Mm -hmm. Uh, So being prepared, I mean, it's tough, right? Like you also have to get into your car as a dirty person, so... Hopefully there's some sort of thing for that. I have seen people do like buckets with like really like tops that screw on. Mm-hmm. Um, and you, again, you fill those with some warm suds water and it doesn't take up that much room in the car. And it, you know, if they screw on, they're pretty secure. Tell you the weed sprayer. The weed sprayer is good, but I think the like soapy water with a sponge, right? And then a, a, maybe another bucket that's clear or then the weed sprayer as the spray off 
tactic. Sure, yeah. But if you have sort of the soapy water, you can use the sponge sort of like do yourself quick, mm-hmm. spray yourself down, and then use the soapy water again on the bike to get even the worst of it, right? And then the weed spray will be enough to, that's how we clean bikes at our condo even is, you know, yeah. soapy water and you do most of the hard work with, you know, sort of scrubbing with your sponge and then you use the weed spray and it will take the suds off no problem. Yeah. Also, um, pro tip, if you use embrocation, so that nice stuff that goes on your legs and warms them up, uh, dish soap. Use dish soap to take it off uh, and wash your legs for, or actually wash your legs last in that case. Uh, you don't want to get embrocation anywhere else. Um, I've, seen, I've seen races ended because of embrocation in the eye. Not actually kidding about that. Um, I've seen races not started because of embrocation that was mistaken for chamois cream. Yeah, it can go in your eyes for sure is going to be an issue. But uh, I've seen you, I don't really use it much, but when I've seen you do, and you use like a, when you're applying it, you use like a Ziploc bag or something on your hand. Yeah, I just cover my hand with a Ziploc bag. The more pro thing would be carry like surgical gloves and use that for application. Right. And and then then throw out the glove. Get rid of the glove. But, you know, I don't always think to bring one of those. I always have a Ziploc bag somewhere. So I'll put my hand in the Ziploc and then dip that in the embrocation. That way my hand is completely clear of anything potentially burning. Right. Yeah, and also try not to put embrocation on if you think you're going to be pulling your skin suit up and down to use the washroom or do anything like that, just because you never really know where it's going to get. What about the start? I was going to ask you this question. What about it? Like when to get there or? Uh, I mean, that's an interesting, like people have to read that situation, like staging and whether they get called up and that's how, and that's like, I have some clients have to stand for 15, 20 minutes before the race and then start cold, basically. So the big warm jacket's helpful there. Definitely. I mean, I think that's actually a huge thing. I've even seen a couple pros get relegated to the back because they were, you know, doing their own warm-up thing and didn't realize that staging, you know, was going to start fairly early and they just weren't allowed into, you know, the first couple of rows. Right. So being there early you know there's always a place you can pedal around if you have to but being there with tons of time to spare is just a really smart move you know not like half an hour but like when you're getting to 15 minutes before race time i would say i'd like to see most people heading over at that point yeah i'd usually circle and just sort of suss out the situation and just keep checking in bearing in mind i'm a you know two hour minimum at the airport person so yeah, there's sort of that gamble, but I think we overthink, you know, how long that warm-up will quote-unquote last, right? I think some of it's, you know, a lot of it is is mental. Uh, just You just need to be at the line and be ready to go, right? You'll get you'll get sort of set up. And again, I think overdressing for the warm-up and being warm, as, as warm as you can, but being motivated and, and having that start position are going to be our pretty big pieces. The perfect warm-up is less of that. Well, and I mean, honestly, from a family perspective, if I was a master's racer that was there with my kids and stuff, I would probably actually prefer to, you know, kind of say goodbye to them a little bit earlier and give myself that couple minutes, you know, a couple extra minutes of sort of solitude to get into my my zone, if you will. Even like, I mean, my parents come to some of my races and I totally try to ditch them to go to the start a little bit early. Not because they're a hassle, just because I need that quiet time for myself. And I think whether it's mountain biking or cross, usually the way I'm thinking about it is, you know, I know I need my maybe 45 minutes I'd leave for my warm up, And then I know that staging's generally mountain biking. Most of the races I do, I get some sort of call up. Uh, but if that's not the case, this would be slightly different, but you know, I'm going to get, again, most of the warm up, the meat of the warm ups done 15 minutes before, and then maybe they're only going to call, you know, get organized five minutes before, and then I have to ride around and maybe do an extra little sprint or, or whatever. But if it's, if it's super hot, I'm not really stressed on it. I'm just going to sit under a tree. Mm-hmm. If it's cold, I'll just try and stay warm and pedaling. And again, a little bit of, you know, up to threshold sort of intensity, even just to stay warm. And then you're going to sit there and you're always going to sit there longer than you want. It's going to feel like forever because you're nervous. So then how do you, you know, the start's always the most nerve wracking part. So how do you deal with that? Well, I think this is where 
every pro kind of has their like little tick, I'll say. So, you know, if you watch the pros on the start line, you see a certain amount of like helmet straps getting adjusted, um, sunglasses being adjusted, you know, they check the watch, they look down, you know, they, some of them will, you know, be stone cold killer face and, you know, not speaking to anyone. Other people will be chatting. Um, I found for me, it's depended from race to race. There are some, you know, where I'm just perfectly happy to chat with people, usually cyclocross because it's, you know, even when they're my competitors, they've always been, you know, my good friends were in the race with me. So, you know, we're kind of talking and laughing and then with a minute to go, we get serious. Um, but when it's been just me at a, a race where I don't really know anyone, I have my weird little tics where I like, you know, tap my fingers together and do certain things to kind of get me into my little zone. So I think things like that, just having kind of your little rituals, things you check, you know, whether it's taking off the jacket at two minutes to go or however it goes, just knowing what you need to check and what you need to do before the start. Yeah. Anything to add to that? It's a nerve wracking thing. I think when you haven't done it a lot, right? Especially. Yeah, for sure. I think I've gotten to the point in the last couple of years where I can just sort of sit there quietly. And if someone's talking to me, I can joke with them a bit. Um, I think people, you know, we've talked about this inverted you and the arousal and, you know, sort of being the right amount of excited when the gun goes, right? And what are you focused on? Uh, and I think that's, you know, that's sort of where you need to do some introspection is, are you a person who's thinking, oh my God, like this is going to be the hardest start ever? Or are you the person who's thinking like very specifically about your pedal and how you're ever going to get clipped in in time? Or are you the person who's thinking about, oh, I have to win this race, right? And where is that attention? And then is that the best place to have your attention? Like what is the actual, like what are the cues, the things that you need to be attending to, the things you need to be paying attention to? Mm-hmm. at that moment right and, yeah. and I think it varies a bit on the person but we're all trying to get to that like flow state where you're not overthinking it right which is hard when you're a new person it's not really not really possible even right yeah and I mean in cyclocross especially like yes flow state but you absolutely have to be so aware of your surroundings and the people around you I mean I think I'd say a third of the cyclocross races I've seen have had a crash in the starting stretch And I think most of the time that's caused by someone who's so very much in their own brain that they're completely oblivious to everything that's happening around them. And that's how you end up with a bar hooked or, you know, kind of like accidentally moving, you know, a couple inches in on somebody and then their front wheel goes and, you know, down goes the whole, the whole lineup. And I think that's, that's sort of the context of the game. Um, I think you know, the further back you are in a pack, it gets a little dangerous with that, but also people are a little chiller in a lot of the packs too. So you can keep your head up. And if it, if you're new, you just start at the back and work your way up and then get a race under your belt. Right. And that's how you start. Um, even the front row though, I think you still have to be super aware of the people around. Yes. And everyone cares a lot there. Right. But there's sort of this like odd, like the people at the front care a lot. The people behind them want to get around them as fast as they can. And then there's like a middle group that's just going to be chaotic. And then the back people also care, but you know, you could just sort of sag the start a bit. There's going to be a bottleneck and you're going to be back in the group and probably pass 10 people. And if you don't get caught in the crash, you can pass like 30 people. I remember starting Wyndham World Cup. They started way down in the town the one year and we had to climb up this like road on a mountain bike race. But like, so there was like 150 people and me and Adam Craig, I think Adam Craig, this is one of his last like World Cups. He's on a single speed. And we, the two of us were like pretty much at the back. And so we go up this road and we're just both seated and we're getting gapped by the field but then they hit the first like narrowing of the course and then the two of us somehow like went around like 30 people and you know we're up decent start considering we started back row but we never had to do the like two surges to get before that Mm -hmm. and then you're sort of just like in it and i think i don't remember you could look back at that world cup i don't remember the year but uh he actually did pretty well and i did okay but uh, surprisingly well for a guy that started back row on a single speed but um all that to say you don't have to be a lot of times in races if you're that far back you know just just get into the race and then it'll all make sense uh, the only other thing i was thinking is you know 
the practicing all this stuff often when we're, we're nervous about something it's because we haven't done it a lot we're not it's unfamiliar right you're still nervous at the start but you know that becomes for different reasons um and I think becoming familiar with it, right? You know, when you were talking about this at the quest with Ellen Noble and like how many times do they simulate a start, either just her on her own or in their group practice or the, you know, everyone's doing their weekly cyclocross practice or weekly cyclocross race. Mm-hmm. It's a big part of the sport. You know, while you're doing your pre-ride, could you, you see a lot of people do this, even as elites, you know, they're simulating the gear and visualizing that right at the start line of the race the day before, right? They're figuring out the gear they want to use. They're doing three practice attempts, you know, from the exact same race start, you know, at the venue, but just clipping in. They're used to clipping and they're used to that, you know, take a big deep breath. You know, I always sit on the nose of my saddle. I always have my right foot in the pedal. So you're not overthinking, like, which foot do I start with again? What gear do I use? Where do I sit? Um, And then you can just practice, right? And you can practice in those little groups, fun rides. And once you've done a lot of starts, it's, it's, you're used to it, right? Yeah, for sure. Um, The other thought I had is, you know, you could certainly do some visualization. Maybe this is more of a winter trainer exercise, but just watch race starts. There's probably head cams of lots of different race starts. And just pretend you're in it. Like even on your trainer, you could stand there, pretend you're going to do the race start, hop up on your saddle, start pedaling with the group. Right? And I think you'd get a lot of that like mental like butterflies in your stomach. You know, I always get chills. I was going to say like, I'm getting upset right now. My heart right? rate is. Yeah, you might. Like I have some chills. Going a little hard. Chills like sort of on my skin. Peter, that's because you left the window open. Yeah, it's cold in Canada. That's how we started. Um, so I think those are some ideas. You know, anytime you're nervous about something, you just need to find ways to you know, progressively, what's the progressive, it's not exposure, but you're scared of snakes. So you look at pictures of snakes, right? And then you go to the zoo and snakes behind the glass. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh, now I really have chills. Yeah. Then all of a sudden you're holding snakes yeah. and then you can like go sleep in the jungle or something. And yeah, you like own a snake all of a sudden and you're that person. You own, you're like, Did you buy us a snake? 10 snakes. Did you buy us 10 snakes? They call you the animal lady. Anyway. Okay, last topic for today. Just a couple words on eating for cyclocross because I feel like this is a huge thing because cyclocross races tend to be at sort of wacky times. It's very rare that they're at really convenient times. Like, I don't know that many people who get to race at like 10 a.m. where they can get up and have breakfast at 7. There's got to be someone who races at 10. I mean, obviously, I just don't know who those people are. It's just like a worldwide rule that there's no race. Yeah, ra- there's no racing yeah, between we observe, 10 and 12. We observe. We have some, yeah, some sort of ceremony. Mid-morning nap? I don't know. Uh, yeah, it's true. It's all races, right? It's either early or it's late in the day. Um, the biggest thing I see is you just got to eat. You know, yes. it, it, nothing crazy, nothing hugely outside of your normal, but like just keep some food coming in. If your race is later in the day, have a normal breakfast and then, you know, have some snacks beforehand. What would normal snacks be? Pre-race snacks. Uh, I mean, my inclination is to say things that you would not necessarily agree with. Um, so I'll say like Ellen Noble, for example, like an hour and a half before we'll do a gluten-free waffle with um, you know, pure maple syrup, something like that. So something that's a little bit more carb heavy. I think that's great. Um, waffles, cyclocross yeah, food. Perfect. Boom. Maple syrup. That's great. Yeah. I and was going to say, my, but, but in, people, peanut butter sandwiches. Yeah. Great. Bars. Great. You know, if you're riding and you're doing a bunch of on and off the course, you could even be in a mix. Like this is, again, people try and make it more complicated. Like you're just doing a training ride, right? And then at some point you're going to press lap on your Garmin or your cycle computer and the race starts. And then when you're done, press lap again, and then you're going to cool down. So it's a lot like sometimes people overcomplicate race day, but just do everything like that should be the goal. You know, the, you make your battle stance, your everyday stance, and then it's not as nerve wracking, right? There's obvious differences. You know, someone's going to give you a time. There's a lot of people around. There's cowbells. But you can try and simulate a lot of that. So whatever you normally eat before your workouts right? Whatever you normally drink during your hard workouts. Mm-hmm. I think the only other thing I'll add is just, you know, topping off like within 15 minutes before the start, having, you know, around a hundred calories, give or take of something, you know, a lot of the pros will do the gel on the line, but you know, for you, that might mean a couple of cliff shot blocks or a couple of bites of a bar or something like that. If that's, 
Sure. You know, more your preference. Make sure you drink a little bit of water with that. I think that's actually probably one of the bigger things is when it gets colder out, it's so hard to be at a course and be drinking enough. So I think making sure you show up with bottles that are maybe actually a little warm when the temperatures start dropping. So. Yeah, or the insulated bottles. Yeah. yeah. So you're not just well, trying to sip on frozen water. And it's, you know, people think about the hydration, but it could be the digestion of that that carbohydrate or whatever you're eating, right? Whether it's a banana yeah, exactly. or a gel or, you know, you've made your little date square, super organic paleo energy squares that still needs water. Right yeah. or else you're gonna have a block in your stomach and it's gonna not go down well, right? And so we're just trying to keep it simple, but keep that energy coming in. And it's pretty, you know, you've got that nervous stomach or whatever, and you know, trying to practice that again so that the nervous stomach's used to it, and then you know, being prepared so that you have a less nervous stomach is also gonna help. Um, but eating something, I think, right? You can certainly refine timing and stuff like that, but. The biggest mistake I see is I ate breakfast and then I raced at two and I've been doing pre-rides and warm-ups and, you know, I rode for three hours and then I raced and didn't eat the entire time because you don't eat during cyclocross. That is not true. Well, I mean, you don't feed generally, right? <laughs> yeah. So that's what, you know, okay. But the key is like, you got to try and keep that fluid and, and food in, the fuel in for <laughs> as long as you can, right? And that's having watched all the cyclocross at the elite level those people are just, you know, the bars are there, the gels are there, the bananas are there, the waffles are there, sandwiches are there. Uh, and it's just whatever folks are into, right? It doesn't really matter. It's, you know, you have your food, I have mine, but it's the food that stays in my belly and, you know, fuels. Totally. Um, okay. Well, I think- yeah, I think that's it. I think we talked, we didn't really reference the bunny hopping barriers uh, video that I did that's free. So the the mounts and dismounts one, you got to pay for that. That's a whopping $19 to learn step-by-step step how to do mounts and dismounts. But if you just want to skip that and never get off your bike, even though you'll probably have to, because <laughs> at some point I will create a barrier high enough, uh, free video. Canadian Cycling Magazine filmed it. Really well done, I think. Uh, at least from a filming perspective. I don't want to commentate on my own coaching was, and drills. Okay. Uh, but it's step-by-step. Step. Five basic steps to go from sort of not lifting your wheels to flying over barriers. Uh, we'll put that in the show notes um, because I don't really have a convenient link for it that I can give you. But if you Google Canadian Cycling Magazine, Bunny Hop, Cyclocross Barriers, you'll probably find it. But uh, We'll put that in the show notes. Uh, and again, before we go, just a quick request that if you've been listening to this show for a while, if you've been enjoying it, if you've gotten anything out of it, we would love it if you'd pop over to iTunes and just rate and review the podcast. It's super helpful for us. Um, and of course, we'd love to hear any questions. If you have any suggestions for guests, anything like that, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram. Peter is at Peter Glassford and I'm at Molly J. Herford. Thank you guys so much for tuning in and we will see you next week. <laughs>